Take your Bible and turn with me this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And I'm going to read the, the first three verses, but there are 39 verses in this chapter. And we're going to look at all 39. Oh, you say, oh, no, Pastor, surely not. Well, we're going to be skipping through them. We're not going to stop and read every one of them, but we're going to be looking at all of these 39 verses at some point uh, in the course of this message as we continue in this series entitled Dear Paul. But let me just read the opening three verses of this chapter. Picking up from what he said in chapter 13, he says, Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God, for no one understands him. However, in the Spirit he speaks mysteries, but he who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. I was thinking back this week about how to introduce this message, and I was thinking about my years in high school, you know, back in the dark ages, my, my years in high school. And in high school, we took subjects that were the core subjects that everybody had to take. You took the same ones that I had to take. They were core subjects that all of us had to pass. We all had to take. We all had to pass if we were going to graduate. You know, it involved science and history and geography and math, and there were civics classes and other kinds of subjects of that nature. I was thinking specifically about some of those math classes. I took Algebra 1, and I took Algebra 2, and I took Geometry. Those were all, uh, were all taught by Coach Floyd. He was the head football coach at our, our school outside of Atlanta, Georgia. And a good man, a good teacher. I just wasn't real smart in those subjects. Uh, I struggled. I passed. I got through. I don't think I got A pluses or A's. I think I got through with B's, maybe a C here or there. But I got through. And I took those three subjects. The other one that I struggled with was languages. They didn't offer any language but Spanish. And I took Spanish. My teacher was Miss Barfield, and she was the teacher of that class, two years of Spanish. And I was thinking about those core classes. Everybody took uh, those classes. You, you take certain classes. You, I'm sure, take algebra. You take, uh, took geometry. You took a language. It might not have been Spanish, but you took a language. They were core classes for you to be able to graduate from high school. And I was thinking about those classes, specifically about algebra, geometry, and about Spanish. And I was thinking back across my, my years of life since those days, I can't remember a time when I used anything that I learned in algebra, one or two. Now, now, some of you are algebra teachers. You may say, oh, P Pastor, you're not thinking about this. You, you were actually using it here. And obviously, it taught you how to think. It taught you how to reason. It, it taught you some of those important aspects. But I, I can't think of a time when I specifically used something over the past number of years of my life that, that came out of those algebra classes. I needed them. They were core classes. I needed to take them to graduate. It was a matter of laying a foundation for what I might end up doing in my life to be able to have those classes. But, you know, I look back all these years and I really don't think I've ever used anything out of any of those algebra classes. I have used a little bit out of the geometry class. 
I can think of a few times, a handful of times, when something I learned in geometry has been valuable to me and it's helped me, but it's been very rare and not very often. Or I think about Spanish. The one thing I wish I had done more of was been more careful about learning my Spanish. I learned and passed the class. I can say some words like el telefono or el baño. You know what that means? Or uh, no hablo espanol or hola. I learned some words that probably many of you can speak fluently. I just picked up some things, some thoughts to help me be able to to utilize them. And when I've traveled to countries where they speak in Spanish, I've thought a thousand times over, why didn't I do better in Spanish class? But the truth of the matter is I don't use it very often. You don't speak Spanish and I don't speak Spanish when we come to church. So it's not used very often. The point I'm making is that there were classes that you took when you were in school that you may look back on and you may say to yourself, why did we need that? It was a part of the core curriculum. It was a part of laying a foundation for what we were going to do possibly with our lives. And so there were certain subjects that everybody had to go through and everybody had to take and and everybody ultimately had to pass if they were going to graduate uh, from high school. They were just needed even if you didn't use them beyond your high school years. They were needed for you to be taken. What does that have to do with 1 Corinthians chapter 14? Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 14 is part of the core curriculum of being spiritual, of being a student of the Bible. Some of you are going to listen to what I have to say today, and you're going to say, why in the world do I even need to know this? Why is this even important for me to remember? I don't think I'm going to open to 1 Corinthians chapter 14 anytime soon in the distant future of my life. I'm not going to open to 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and be looking for the comfort of God or the direction of God for my life out of that chapter. I understand that. I understand that. But it is a part of the core curriculum. And that core curriculum is this book. And God spilled a lot of ink, if you will. He used a lot of ink to record for us the 14th chapter of 1 Corinthians. And because it's in his inspired word, whether we see its significance or not, or its importance, or we think we'll need it or not, we definitely need to understand what he's saying because it's important because God said it, and he put it in his inspired word. And maybe you'll look back years from now, and you'll look at this sermon, and you'll say, what did that have to do with me? Well, I'm going to try to make it very practical as we come to the close of this message. But the point is, you're going to say, what what does it have to do with me? And and I'm going to say to you, it's part of the core curriculum. It's like algebra one and two and geometry and Spanish and maybe some other subjects that you had to take that were a part of your educational experience that you needed in order to be able to be well-rounded in your approach to life. And you need 1 Corinthians 14, even if you don't understand all that it says, and even if you don't know exactly how to apply it in every part of your life. Let me remind you that chapters 12, 13, and 14 are the Apostle Paul writing to the church at Corinth about spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts are not natural talents. They're not abilities. They're not learned skills. These are things that God gives to you the moment you are born into the family of God. The moment you trust in his son, Jesus, 
as your Savior, instantaneously you are given at least one spiritual gift. And that spiritual gift is supposed to be employed in the church of the living God. It's supposed to be employed in a local assembly like this where we are serving each other and we are serving God together. When you get to chapter 13, he reminds you that as important as spiritual gifts are, more important than spiritual gifts are that we learn to love one another. You spend all your time focused on what's my spiritual gift and you don't love people in the process, your spiritual gift is a waste of time. You got to love people. The use of your spiritual gift is to be used in the, in the context of loving other people. But when you get to chapter 14, you know that chapter that's a part of the core curriculum that we need to learn, whether we fully understand why we need to learn it or not? He's talking about two specific spiritual gifts that the Corinthians valued highly. One of them was the gift of prophecy, and the other was the gift of tongues. So that when you read through these 39 verses, the whole point of this passage is Paul is telling us that intelligible speech, that is prophecy, and I'll define that for you in a moment, intelligible speech is superior to unintelligible speech in the church. And the unintelligible speech is tongues. So he's contrasting these two and he's saying, look, it's more important that prophecy be used in the church than it is tongues. And the reason is because people will understand the language that's being spoke when you're giving a message from God, but when you're speaking in tongues, there'll be a limited number of people who will understand, or maybe nobody who will understand. And when you gather as the church, it's always more important, he's saying, in essence, that intelligible speech be used. You say, Pastor, that disqualifies your sermons. <laughs> Well, maybe, maybe. But it's always important that intelligible speech be utilized. So what, are, what is the gift of prophecy and what is the gift of tongues? Well, prophecy was primarily an impromptu word that someone would share in a service. It involved a message through the Holy Spirit to be communicated to the church. Much like in the Old Testament when the prophets would operate, God would speak to the prophet and the prophet would speak to the people. The New Testament, in the New Testament church, they didn't have a completed Bible. They didn't have the Old Testament to carry around with them. They didn't have the New Testament in its entirety in their possession. And so if God wanted to communicate something to his people, he would speak to somebody with the gift of prophecy, and they would then communicate that message to the people. And by the way, later in this chapter, it says that Whatever the prophecy is, it has to be judged by the other prophets. It has to be determined whether this is really just an emotional high that you're on and you're just saying what you want to say, or whether this is really a message from God or not. And they did that by comparing it to the apostles' doctrine, and they did that by comparing it to Old Testament scriptures that they knew. They did that by comparing it to other things to make sure the message was actually from God. But Paul says, when you gather together, it's a whole lot better for those with the gift of prophecy who have a message from God to stand up and give that message than it is for you to use the gift of tongues. By the way, what we're doing here today, what I'm doing here today is not prophecy. It's preaching and teaching. I, I study the scripture. I seek to rightly divide what it says. I organize it. I exegete it. I, I, I then expound on it. Then I apply it. 
I organize it in a way so that we can understand what God is saying. That's not prophecy. That's preaching and teaching. That's what, that's what I am, a pastor teacher. The gift of prophecy was a special gift, I believe, no longer necessary in the New Testament church because we have a completed text in the New Testament. We no longer need special messages coming from God to give direction or comfort or encouragement to his people. I'm not going to limit God and say God can't do something. I just don't think they're necessary. They were a part of the founding of the church, says the book of Ephesians. They were a part of the founding of the church. And you can imagine you're a New Testament church, you don't have a New Testament to carry around with you. You have nothing like that to study, to dig into, to exegete or expound or apply. And you got to make a decision. You got to know what God wants. You got to know where God wants you to go, what he wants you to do as a church. And God gives a message to someone and they stand and they give that message. The prophets evaluate whether it's a message from God or not. And God continues to guide his church until his word is complete. The gift of tongues was a secondary gift. The gift of tongues was the ability to speak in a language that you did not know. The ability to speak a language that you had not learned. And that was the gift that the Corinthians really wanted because that was really special. To be able to say that you could speak a language that you didn't know and you were able to say things to people who, who would be amazed at the language you were speaking, that was the gift they really wanted. And Paul comes in this chapter and says, look, it's intelligible speech that's most important when you gather, not unintelligible speech. Prophecy in the church gatherings is more important than the practice of tongues because when prophecy is given, people know what God is saying. When tongues are given, unless there's an interpreter... Nobody really knows what is being said. And so Paul comes and he says, look, prophecy is more important than tongues. And that's what he's going to do throughout this entire chapter. He's going to compare the two. He's going to show you the superiority of prophecy to tongues. That intelligible speech is more important in the church gathering than unintelligible speech. And you say, what about tongues today? Well, our Pentecostal friends and our charismatic friends still practice something that they call the gift of tongues. I don't believe what they practice is what the New Testament is talking about, and it's not my responsibility to critique them uh, and to be critical of them. It is my responsibility to expound what 1 Corinthians 14 says and say, if you're going to practice the gift of tongues, you ought to at least follow the rules for how you practice the gift of tongues. And that's where I want to begin. There's seven of these rules. Here, here we go. This is algebra one. This is algebra two. This is maybe geometry for you. Or, or maybe it was as, you know, French or Spanish for you. This is, this is important for you to know. If you're going to speak in tongues, Paul says, there's some rules you ought to follow. Number one, only God can give the gift of tongues, and therefore no one should seek it on their own. So the whole idea that we're going to go out and say, God, give us the gift of tongues, Lord, give us the gift of tongues, is antithetical to what the New Testament text says. You've got to turn back a page in your Bible first to chapter 12. Go back to chapter 12 where we studied earlier. and Look at verse, uh, if you will, verse 11. And notice he said, but one in the same spirit works all these things. Verse 10, he lists some of the gifts. 
But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. As he wills. Or if you look down to verse 30, chapter 12, verse 30, talking about the gifts, and he's asking questions where you obviously know what the answer to the question should be. He says, do all have gifts of healings? The answer is no. Do all speak with tongues? Again, the answer is no. Do all interpret? Again, the answer is no. In other words, the gift of tongues is something that God supernaturally and divinely, sovereignly would give. And so the whole idea that we have to seek it is supposedly a part of our baptism in the Spirit, which really takes place the moment you're saved, and therefore you ought to be seeking that gift of tongues is opposed to the very opening rule of how to use tongues if it's going to be used in the church. Rule number two, when a person speaks in tongues, someone will recognize it as an intelligible language. Somebody will recognize it as an intelligible language. I want to stop here for a moment. And I promise before we end, it's going to get very practical. Let's stop here for a moment with me. Um, John MacArthur, Dr. John MacArthur, has an interesting interpretation of 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Dr. MacArthur is the pastor of Grace Community Church out in California. He's a prolific author. He's a commentator on Scripture. He has a commentary on every book of the New Testament. He is a modern-day scholar, if you will. When he interprets 1 Corinthians chapter 14, he says that there's two kinds of tongues that are being spoken about in 1 Corinthians 14. When you see the word singular, tongues singular, he's talking about one kind. When you see the word tongues plural, he's talking about another kind. Let me just point it out to you for a moment. Look down to verse 4. He who speaks in, here it is singular, a tongue edifies himself. Down to verse 5. He says, I wish all you spoke with, here's the plural, tongues. Now, you you should do this on your own, your own Bible study. Go through there. Every time he says a tongue or every time he uses the plural, circle those two times. You'll see it again, six or seven or eight times he uses a tongue or he uses tongues plural. And Dr. MacArthur says that a tongue was ecstatic speech. It was something that they brought from the pagan religions from which they had been saved, and they brought it into the local church, and they were practicing and using it in the local church. In the pagan religions, you would get all worked up emotionally. You'd have a stirring that goes on around you and within you, and that would lower the inhibitions that you have, and you would begin to speak out in some kind of a static language. It's not an intelligible language by some nationality of people. It's not a dialect of some nationality of people. It's some kind of unintelligible speech that you're using. And you would speak out in this emotional state from this lower in, lowered inhibition in, in this kind of speaking where it was just an ecstatic utterance. And Paul says that, or excuse me, John MacArthur says that Paul is talking about that when he uses the singular. And he's saying in this text, that's a spurious gift. That's not from God. That's from your emotions. That's not from God. But Dr. MacArthur says the true gift is the gift of tongues. Tongues is plural. There's lots of different languages. 
you know, ecstatic utterances, there's only one of those. But there's lots of, different, lots of different languages. And every time you see the word languages, he's talking about like French or Spanish or Hebrew or Greek or one of those languages that has to be known in the world. When he uses the, the term tongues, he's using it in, the, in reference to the true gift. And so in the singular, it's the false gift. In the plural, it's the true gift. And he goes through here and he breaks that down. And he may be right. I haven't been fully convinced, but he may be right. But he comes to the same conclusion that I come to. And that is the true gift of tongues is the speaking of a language that is known by some nationality or dialect of some group of people. By the way, did you know when I moved from Georgia to West Virginia 40 years ago, I had to learn a new dialect? We all spoke, we all, we all spoke English. But I had to learn some new words. It's not hurricane, it's hurricane. You know, there's all kinds of those kind of things that you have to learn. And when you see tongues here, it's talking about an intelligible language. That's the whole point. Look at verse 8. Listen to what he says in verse 8. For if a trumpet, if the trumpet makes an uncertain sound, who will prepare for battle? So likewise you, unless you utter by the tongue words, here it is, easy to understand, how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. There are, it may be, so many kinds of languages. And are there not many kinds of languages? Do you realize that there are people in the world who do not have a Bible in their heart language? It's never been translated into their heart language. There are so many kinds of languages in the world, and none of them is without significance. All of them are important. Therefore, if I do not know the meaning of the language, I shall be a, what is he? Foreigner to him who speaks, and he who speaks will be a foreigner to me. When I think about the gift of tongues, the genuine gift of tongues. If John MacArthur is right, he's contrasting the spurious gift with the genuine gift. The conclusion is the same. Where the genuine gift of tongues is utilized, it's always referring to intelligible language known by some group of people somewhere. Think about it with me for a moment. Don't, don't turn back to Acts chapter 2, but just think with me for a moment. It's the day of Pentecost, the beginning of the church. They've been up in the upper room praying for the last 10 days, and the Holy Spirit comes, comes down, baptizes them into the body of Christ, and fills them. And it says there are tongues of fire that rest upon the apostles, and they go out amongst the people, and they begin to speak. And they listen to what it says. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak. This is chapter 2, verse 4, with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Is that some kind of a static utterance, or is this some kind of intelligible language? Verse 5, and there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born, Parth Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Ju Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya, uh, adjoining Cyrus, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear 
them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. They were intelligible languages. Whether you take John MacArthur's explanation or you follow my explanation, we come to the same conclusion that when he talks about tongues, the genuine gift of tongues, it's a gift that God gave to the early church for the purpose of communicating with people whose languages they did not know. If we were going to see the gift of tongues exercised today, where would be the greatest place for that gift to be given? The greatest place for that gift to be given would be to the missionaries. So they didn't have to go to language school, and they didn't have to learn the language of the people, that God would just give them the language so that they could speak. They would be speaking in their language, but somehow God would make it come out as the language of the people that they're speaking to. That's what happened in Acts chapter 2, rule number 3. All use of the gift of tongues for personal gratification and enjoyment is strictly forbidden. Any use of the gifts, for that matter, and especially the use of the gift of tongues, isn't because it makes you feel good. Well, I just feel closer to God. I just sort of get a stirring all over. I I just have this emotional high whenever I'm speaking in the gift of tongues. That's never been the purpose of spiritual gifts to begin with. It is the sweet spot of your spiritual life, but it isn't for your own benefit alone. It's for the benefit of the church as a whole. And again, I can't take the time to break all of this down, but look back for a moment, if you will, uh, to chapter 14. Notice what he says, verse 4, he who speaks in a tongue edifies himself. If there's nobody to interpret it and there's nobody to understand it, the only person who can benefit from it is yourself. And Paul is not advocating that. He's saying that's not the way it's supposed to be. Your spiritual gift wasn't given to you for you. Your spiritual gift was given to you for the benefit of the church. He goes on. He who prophesies edifies the church. I wish you all spoke with tongues, but even more that you prophesied. For he who prophesies is greater than he who speaks with tongues, unless indeed he interprets that the church may receive edification. I wish I could go on. We could go on through this chapter. Just just take a moment. Look at verse 12. He says, even so you, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, let it be for the edification of the church that you speak to excel. Do you see what he's saying? You see the word edification again. That's another word you want to circle as you go through here. The purpose of the gifts was to build up others, not to just build up yourself. Rule number four, the gift of tongues was primarily a sign to unbelieving Israel and not of some mystical spiritual experience. In the middle of this, verse 21, he quotes from the Old Testament. In the law it is written with men of other tongues and other lips, I will speak to this people, and yet for all that they will not hear me, says the Lord. Therefore tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe. Tongues aren't for believers. They're for people who need to hear the message that don't believe. But to unbelievers, but prophesying is not for unbelievers, but for those who believe. In other words, he reminds them about what happened to Israel. You remember when Israel, the northern kingdom, went into captivity to Assyria? And then later, the southern kingdom went into captivity to Babylon? And when these Jews are now in Assyria or in a Babylon, they're hearing a language that is not their language, and it's a reminder to them that they are under judgment. It's the reason you've been, her- you've been carried away captive to a foreign land. It's about judgment such that when you talk about the spiritual gift of tongues, it's not really a sign 
For believers, oh, if I just have the gift of tongues, I'll know I'm in touch with God. No, it's a sign for unbelieving Israel, not some mystical experience. Number five, you should never allow more than three persons to speak in tongues at any gathering. Just follow the rules. Verse 27, if anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be two or at the most three. He says two or at the most three. It's not a room full of people. It's not 10 or 12 or 15 people. It's two or three people that are speaking. And rule number six, when someone else is speaking in tongues, the others must wait their turn. Uh Uh-oh. Verse 27, the second part, it says each in turn. Everybody can't speak in tongues at the same time. Talk about confusing. That would be confusing, wouldn't it? And rule number seven, the gift of tongues cannot be used if there's no interpreter present in the service. Look at the last part of verse 27, and let one interpret. But if there is no interpreter, let him keep silent in church and let him speak to himself and to God. If there's nobody to interpret what you're saying, you say you have a word from God that's coming to you as a gift of tongues and you want to speak it to the church and there's nobody to interpret what you're saying, then sit down. not appropriate for the gathering of the church. Now, I want to stop here and I want to say, my Pentecostal friends and my charismatic friends, they are my friends. They're not my enemies. We just disagree. I don't believe the gift of tongues is some ecstatic speech to begin with. And when you use the gift of tongues, the genuine gift of tongues, it ought to be used in the manner and according to the rules that God has given. And if you can't use it according to those rules, sit down and be quiet. It would be far better for somebody who has a message that's been revealed to them from God as a prophet to give that message to the church that it would be for you to stand and speak in some language that nobody understands what's being said and there's nobody there to interpret what's being said. It brings no edification to the church and your spiritual gifts weren't to make you feel better alone. They were for, they were, they were for the purpose of building up the church as a whole. And so you just graduated from Algebra one, Algebra two, Geometry, and Spanish class. It's a part of the curriculum. But I've got good news for you. There's a lot of practical stuff here. And I want to draw it out. There's five things. There's a a dozen things here. But there's five things I want to draw out for you, and I want you to write them down because this is going to make it where you live every single day. I want you to understand when you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 14, here's what you're doing. You're going to church with the Corinthians. You're going into a church service with the Corinthians. You're seeing how they conduct themselves when they gather together as the body of Christ. You're watching this unfold. Paul is saying intelligible speech is more valuable than unintelligible speech. Duh. And if you're going to use the gift of tongues, the genuine gift of tongues, it ought to be used in a manner that Uh, It ought to be used in a manner that recognizes the rules that God has given for it. But you're in the church service. You're in the service. You say, how does the church in the New Testament function? You're in the church service in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. So let me give you some observations from 1 Corinthians 14, these 39 verses. And the first is this. Church is to be a place of commitment, not convenience. It's to be a place of commitment, not convenience. I want you to look back at your Bible. 
Just look back there with me for a moment. I want you to circle some words as you go through here. I can't do them all for you. You can get them later for yourself. But in verse 4, the middle of the verse, but he who prophesies edifies the whom? The church. In the end of verse 5, you've got to have an interpreter that the church may receive edification. In verse 6, he talks about the brethren. That's a plural term when we're together. Do you realize that today, ladies, I'm sorry, I don't mean to offend you, but we call ourselves the brethren. It refers to men and women. We're, we're together, the brethren. You look at verse 12, in the middle of the verse, he uses the word church again. Verse 19, he uses the word church again. Or you get to verse 23, therefore, if the whole church comes together. Verse 24, he talks about being convinced by all. In verse 26, he speaks about the brethren again that come together. And then he finishes up a little later in the chapter, in verse 35 and verse 39, talking about the church and brethren. What is, he, what is he telling us? He's telling us that this church gathered. And the common phrase today is, let's be the church. I don't go to church. I want us to be the church. When you hear somebody say that, they don't understand New Testament ecclesiology. They don't understand the New Testament church. I understand their heart. They want us to be on mission with God when we walk out of this building and be witnesses for God everywhere we go and to make a difference as a salt and light in the world in which we live. But the word church, ecclesia, literally means a gathering together of people. And the New Testament church always gathered together. And it wasn't an option on a menu of choices. It was an obligation of obedience to God and to others. Did you hear that? They didn't wake up on Sunday morning and say, well, I've got a menu full of choices. Will I do this, 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 or this? They woke up on Sunday mornings and they said, this is my obligation to gather with the people of God. My spiritual gift is needed in the functioning of that church when they gather together. And mind you, they didn't have the Second Baptist Church of Corinth and the Unity Baptist Church of Corinth and five or six other versions. They had one church. And Paul doesn't write and say, you know what, that church is a mess, just have church at home. Paul writes and corrects the church and says to them, you be there. That is your obligation. That is your commitment. It is not a matter of convenience. You don't get up and say to your kids, do you want to go to church today? You get up and you say, we're going to church today. My whole life I've been going to church. I never had a choice in going to church. And when I got saved, it didn't have to make it a matter of being forced to go to church. I wanted to gather with the people of God. You're not perfect, and I, neither am I. But there ain't any place I'd rather be on Sunday morning, even on the first tee of... What's the course on the West Coast out there? that I, Pebble Beach. On the first tee of Pebble Beach, there is no place I'd rather be on Sunday morning and on, on the Lord's Day gathering with his people. I'd rather be there than on the first tee of Pebble Beach or Pinehurst number two. I do a lot of reading, obviously, as you do a lot of reading related to what you do. I do a lot of reading, but I... I read about the research that's being done about churches. One church researcher writes, in other words, these are his words, in other words, more than one in four 
pre-COVID churchgoers are still missing, one in four. He goes on. In 2019, 34% of Americans attended a religious service at least once or twice a month. It's 28% in 2021, the last time they have records. In other words, there's been a decline from 34% to 28%. He goes on. Listen. The base level of our commitment should be gathering. Our most common form of gathering in the worship service, that our most common form of gathering is the worship service. But I stand amazed, he says, at how many Christians view the gathering of church members as just another optional activity. It competes with sleeping in, busyness, sports, and just plain apathy. He goes on, the watching world sees our lukewarm commitment and rightly concludes we are not committed to the Savior who gave us our churches. If we don't take Jesus seriously, why should they? And then he concludes. He concludes with a statement. You've got to understand, in this last conclusion, he's going to divide people up. I'm only going to show you one part of it. He divides people into four categories. takes 100%. If 100% of the people showed up, if you take 100% of the membership of a church that are supposed to show up, you have some that are the core. They'll be there three to four Sundays a week, a month, not a week. There's not but one Sunday in a week. Three to four Sundays a month. He calls the marginal, those that are there one or two Sundays a month. He calls those that are the fading, those that are there one Sunday a month and maybe skip a month and there another. And then he has the cultural crowd. That's the people that show up for holidays, Christmas and Easter and those kind of things. Listen to what he says. He concludes, some churchgoers might be uncomfortable with our categorization of someone who attends once or twice a month as marginal. Frankly, many churches have elders and deacons in this category. But these members are, at best, every other week attenders. We estimate that the marginals account for 25% of the membership in a typical church. That means a quarter of you won't be here next week, and the quarter that aren't here this week will be here next week. Do you see a problem with that? Anybody hear a problem with that? Another researcher gives some interesting words. Listen, listen to what he says. Historically, active church members attended three times a week, Sunday morning, Sunday evening, and Wednesday evening. Now we have low-commitment churches. Just get, show up on Sunday. That's all we ask. We don't want anything else from you. Now people, he says, are considered active if they attend every other week. This is another researcher altogether. Many others attend once a month. This change, now listen, it's going to shock you. This change in attendance frequency means churches appear smaller today than they really are. Now listen, in other words, in the past, a church of 400 people in worship meant the church size was about five to 600 people. But today, 400 people in worship in a church today means the church size is about 1,000 to 1,200 people. Do you hear the difference? We'll have 800 people here today. Take that number and think. That means there's almost 2,000 people that are connected to this church and call this church their home, but show up every other week or maybe once a month or maybe on a cultural basis. The core, which makes up a little over 30%, are the ones that show up every Sunday, three out of four Sundays a month. That's a problem. 
And that was a problem. That was a problem for us. That wasn't the problem in first century Corinth. They had a troubled church, but they showed up. They had all these things that were going on in conflict, and they showed up. They came because they knew it was right to come. It wasn't, a, it wasn't a smorgasbord. Well, I'll choose it this Sunday and not that Sunday. It was an obligation that they felt to show their love and their appreciation to the one who had saved them and to employ their spiritual gift in the ongoing of that local church. Yesterday morning, I, I had been studying, and then I left for a little while, and um, I was driving down into Huntington, and I came to one of the youth football leagues, one of the fields where they have the youth football leagues. I turned onto the road. Big mistake. Big mistake. There wasn't a place left to park off the road, and there were cars parked all along the side of the road. And I had to sit here, and I'm not complaining about this. I'm just telling you what I did. I had to sit here while cars were coming this way until there was a break so that I could get out over here and I could go around this long line of cars. And it was packed. There were kids and parents who were flooding toward the football field. Now, first of all, I think that's great. I'm glad that kids have sports. I'm glad that kids get to play youth football. There's a lot of wonderful life lessons that are learned in playing sports and in educational opportunities and a lot of other things that we prioritize. Those are wonderful things. But if you don't teach your children and you don't yourself prioritize the gathering of the believers on the Lord's Day, the next generation will prioritize it less and will end up like they were in the book of Judges. There arose a generation that knew not the Lord. And here was a church that gathered. They gathered together. And number two, that church is to be a place of order, not chaos. It's to be a place of order, not chaos. I heard about three professional men who were arguing one day about which of them had the older of the professions. It was a politician, an architect, and a surgeon. And they were really going at it with each other. And the surgeon said, God put Adam to sleep in Genesis 2. That was surgery. The architect said, yes, but before that, God designed and built everything out of nothing but confusion and chaos. That was architecture. And the politician proudly asked, where do you think they got the chaos and confusion from? <laughs> I got news for you. It didn't come from God. Look back to your chapter, chapter 14, verse 26. How is it then, brethren, whenever you come together, each of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation. You see the church functioning? Let all things be done for edification. Or look over to verse 33. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. He's not the author of confusion, but peace. Or down in verse 40. Let all things be done decently and in order. I understand. Some churches are more highly structured in their services than we are, and others are more loosely structured in worship than we are. But a church to function has to have a structure. They have to have a structure. Because a church is not supposed to be a free-for-all. Everybody's just doing what everybody wants to do. 
Church is supposed to have a mission. They're supposed to understand their purpose for being there is the worship of God and their mission is to minister to the body of Christ and then to leave this uh, congregation and to go be a witness to everybody else. This is not a concert. Who's the, the Eras tour? What's her name? Who? It's not, this is not a Taylor Swift concert. You know, where they got the stands that are packed full with people and this infield is packed and everybody's got their hands in the air and we're all dancing around. Let's all have a big time. It's all, let's throw something at the singer. Let's all have a big time. Let's all have a big sign. There is a time for celebration in church. There is a time for lifting your hands and dancing around. David danced before the Lord with great passion when he brought the when he brought the Ark of the Covenant back to the temple, back to the tabernacle in Jerusalem. He danced before the Lord. There's a place for that. But the gathering of the church is about us coming together and uniting our hearts as one and listening to the Word of God and singing songs together and ministering to each other, looking for opportunities to be an encouragement, to be a guide, to love somebody who needs to be loved so that when we leave this place, we've been built up and we can go back into the world and we can be the salt and the light in the world in which we live. It has to be order in the church. Some are more structured than others. Some are more loosely structured. There has to be order. Theologian Carl Trueblood writes, when worship is turned into a clown show with a religious patina, Christianity and Christians are infantilized and God is mocked. Infantilized means you, you sentence them to a life of infancy, just perpetual childhood. He goes on, such trivialization of worship rests ultimately upon a trivialization of God himself. It is a function of the same culture where sports stars refer to the Lord as the big man upstairs as if God was just one of their drinking buddies. Or where Republican members of Congress, this just happened within the last two weeks, where Republican members of Congress joke about foregoing sex with their fiancé in order to make it to the prayer meeting on time. It is, he says, in other words, just one more example of a world that does not take the holiness and transcendence of God seriously. The only people likely to be falling on their face in such a worship service, he says, are those Christians who take God seriously and cannot believe that adults who claim to be leading God's people into his holy presence would behave that way. This, this isn't a Cincinnati Reds game. This isn't a Marshall University, University football game. This, this isn't a concert tour. There's a place for that kind of celebration. There's a time for that. But there's those moments when we come together and we sing the songs like we sang this morning. Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty. And we recognize that we've come into the presence of the Almighty God. Number three, church is a place of service, not passivity. It's not a place to come and sit and watch. It's a place to come and serve. Look back to verse 26. How is it then, brethren, whenever you come together, each of you has a psalm, has a, has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation, let it be done to edification. What does he say? Each of you. Each of you. Each of you. I just come to Listen to the show, pastor, and leave. This church isn't for you. 
You can find churches that are like that. You can come watch the show and leave, and you have no commitment, no responsibility. That's not what the church is to be about. A church is a place of service, not passivity. I've talked about that in the past. I want to move to number four. Church is a place of clarity, not confusion. If there's ever a place when we ought to be clear, it's here. You say, Pastor, sometimes you're too blunt, you're too direct, you're too clear. Couldn't you beat around the edges a little bit more? If there's ever a time for clarity, it's in the church. Look at it, verse, 1 Corinthians 14, verse 9. So likewise you, unless you utter by the tongue words, here it is, easy to understand. Or look at verse 19. Look at verse 19. Paul says, yet in the church, I would rather speak five words with my understanding that I may teach others also than 10,000 words in a tongue. I mean, you got people speaking in a language that nobody else even understands and there is nobody to interpret what you're saying. What you have is absolute confusion. I remember visiting in the DR with Gary and Allie and I went to church with them on a Sunday morning and they sang to God. It was beautiful singing. Gary preached that morning. Actually, I think I preached that morning. And Tim Bilbrey uh, translated for me. But Gary was speaking to the congregation. And, and I, I, do you ever feel this way? If you've ever been to a foreign country, we, we've been to Greece and Italy, we've been to the Holy Land. You, you get off and they're speaking. We were in downtown Greece, Mary and I, downtown Greece alone, downtown Greece. We went downtown, and suddenly there's an uprising, of, a political uprising. They're marching through the streets. We just want to get back to the hotel. Do you speak Greek? We, we, we flagged down a, 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 ta a taxi cab, a cab, a car to take us. You know, they're asking us where you want to go. Thank the Lord there was somebody who knew both modern Greek and English and were able to tell him where the hotel was. I was never so scared or felt so lost in my whole life. Church is not supposed to be that way where people come in and say, what did he just say? What did he, what did he just say? I, I don't know if I understood what he just And especially when it comes to the gospel. Please, please hear me. Some of you are here and you're lost. You're going to die and you're going to spend eternity separated from God forever. Because you don't understand, you have not yet acknowledged that you are a sinner. That at your very best, you come short of the glory of God. You can never measure to the perfection that would be required for you to be able to get into heaven on your own. And thus, Jesus came from heaven for you. And Jesus went to the cross of Calvary, and Jesus paid the penalty of your sins and my sins once and for all and forever, so that if we would come to Jesus and trust in Jesus, we could be born again. We could become children of God. Our sins would be forgiven. We'd be given the gift of eternal life if we just trust in Jesus Christ. I believe that Jesus died and rose again for me to give me eternal life. That's all it takes. Listen, friends. Don't let the confusion of the world around you cause the confusion in you about the gospel. The gospel is simple, and in the church, it's a place of clarity, not confusion. And finally, church is a place of repentance, not preference. 
I don't know where we got into this whole thing of, well, I like this and I like that and I think it should be this way and I think it should be that way and I think we should do this and I think we should do that and everybody gets all hot and bothered about their preferences. That's not what the church is supposed to be about. Verse 23, therefore, if the whole church comes together, there they are coming together in one place. Hey, the church didn't meet in, in you know, 15 or 20 different houses I'm talking about one family in that house, one family in that house, one family in that house. They came together in one place and all speak with tongues and there come in those who are uninformed or unbelievers. Will they not say that you are out of your mind? The word means you're insane. These people are insane. But if all prophesy, an an unbeliever, an uninformed person comes in, he is convinced by all, he is convicted by all, and thus the secrets of his heart are revealed. And so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is truly among you. You know what the church ought to be? Church ought to be a place where people are getting right with God. You and I are getting right with God. Some of you have drifted so far from the Lord, you can see it. It's written all over your faces. You can watch it in your actions. You no longer love God. You're angry with God. You're bitter with God. Your your heart is distant from God, and you need to come and repent and say, oh, God, this is not right for me to be this way. And it ought to be that there are people who walk in amongst us who don't know Jesus, and they say, wow, this, 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 this church is... That's not like the other churches I've been to. I mean, there's something here that's different. And they fall on their faces and they say, oh God, save me from my sins. That's what a church is about. Church is to be a place of repentance, not preference. 